0: Good morning. Good morning. So, I have a few more announcements and then we will dive into the text. Number one, so we will still be taking up the offering this morning. We will not pass the plates. So, we have a plate in the back. You can uh, get there, just drop it in. Before you leave, I just touch my face. I, I, somebody's going to keep a counter how many times I touched my face during this. I'll wash my hands afterwards, I promise. And uh, so, there's also um, online. You can give if you are not present this morning or if you just want to give that way anyway. In our app, there are multiple links to online giving within the app. Also on our website, one of the first tabs on the top of the page is give. You can give online. That works just as well as in person. I do encourage you to use one of those means. And uh, we won't do any announcements at the end, so I'm going to make sure they're, they're all out of the front. So when we finish the sermon, we will be finished this morning. So grab your Bible and go to 1st. Peter. Now, the setting may feel different. The context may seem a little strange for us today, but we're not going to spend um, any less amount of uh, respect towards the scriptures. We're going to dive in and study just as much as we would in a normal setting. Maybe even a little more because it doesn't feel quite as formal. Maybe we'll dive in a little deeper, but we'll see what happens. Um, we're going to dive into one of my favorite passages in First Peter this morning. So we're going to be in First Peter. We'll be in chapter one. We're going to make it from verses 3 through verse 5, so just part of this one paragraph, three whole verses. So it's going to be a lot of work for us to get through this morning. And as we prepare ourselves to think about this passage, let's just set the context again for what is happening in 1 Peter. So let's start with the super basics. When we say 1 Peter, we mean Peter wrote this, and it's the first of two letters by Peter We have in the scriptures, So it's not like some of the other complicated scenarios. We just have a letter by Peter to a group of churches in what we would call modern Turkey, Asia Minor, in biblical times. He calls them the elect exiles. That's a key word for Peter. He's writing to a group that he's calling the elect exiles. Now, exiles is a Jewish reference. He's going to say later in the letter he's writing from Babylon, which is not literally where he's writing from. He's in Rome and he's writing from Babylon, but he's using this Jewish metaphor from the old Testament that he's writing to believers, Christians who are in exile and he's writing from the center of that exile, the very heart of darkness itself. He's writing to them from Rome in the context that they don't live at home. They are out in the world as exiles from their true land which is heaven itself. And so we're going to have a lot of context, a lot of um, sermons, a lot of messages in First Peter about how we live in relation to the world if we are exiles from a different foreign kingdom. And that's what he's writing about. So there's persecution, there's struggles. How do you relate to the government? How do you deal with persecution? How do you deal with just not having hope in a world where you are actually, in fact, an exile of some greater reality. That's the context of First Peter. And so we're diving in. He's just given an introduction. We're going to pick up in verse 3 in just a moment. But I want to remind you of one other theological piece that needs to be part of your system when you're reading the Bible. I know questions come up all the time. We see these promises of the Lord. Sometimes people wonder, well, if God's so big and mighty, how come things like this happen? If if God is supposedly more powerful than cancer, why is, why is there cancer? And in some ways, there's always a version of the what's called in theology the problem of evil. And there's this question, well, how is it that if God is in control, that these things could happen? The Bible has a very straightforward approach to all of these things. that assumes this is part of God's plan. God's using all of these things to manifest his glory. But we still see things, Jesus talking about the prosperity, it feels like, that would come from following Jesus. If you follow Jesus, in fact, some people would even go as far as to teach it this way, that if you followed Jesus, everything in your life would be fixed. It's like Jesus is this magic powder, you sprinkle it on your life, and it fixes everything. It heals your body, it heals your mind, it heals your relationships, it heals your finances, it heals everything about you, yet that's not the world we live in. Jesus does promise good things to come. The Bible does promise Wealth and prosperity. The Bible does promise health, but not yet. And this is a key piece of our theology. There's an already not yet piece to understanding the gospel, to understanding how this created order works. There is a day coming where everything is right, but we live in a day where everything is seemingly wrong. This is a basic assumption of New Testament Christians, It was a basic assumption in the Old Testament. Even the book of Job is designed to answer that question, why do the righteous suffer? And the ultimate answer is they do, and this is part of God's plan. We don't always have answers to all of our questions. We have to take Jesus at his word. That reminds me, so over the weekend, we were in the car, we were driving, and a conversation came up about church, and we were having church, and my um, five-year-old, I thought a very interesting question, he said, Daddy, do we pick what day we worship the Lord on? And because he, he knew the next day was Sunday. And he was wondering, like, could we do it today? Could we do it Wednesday? Does it really matter? And I said, Well, that's a that's a really good question. And I said, No, we, we don't we don't pick the day. Instead, you know there's there's a the a reason we have a particular day and so i give him this long elaborate answer and i'm like i'm so proud of myself too because i go into you know if you think about how the world works the earth spins around in a circle we call that a day so there's a you know astrological phenomena that determines what a day is the the moon going around the earth in one orbit that's a month and so there's an astrological or cosmological, I'm not sure which word is correct there, a um, phenomena that describes what a month is and a year is defined as the earth going around the sun. And I said, But there's no actual reason to do a seven-day week where one of those days is dedicated to the Lord other than the creation narrative of Genesis. There's no reason, there's no astrological phenomena, there's no cosmological thing that says a week is seven days. We get that from creation. God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh, and and we honored Him on that day. He commanded us to do so. In the New Testament, we do it on the resurrection day, but it's the same principle applied. And I'm just so proud of this answer, and I look back at Blaze, and he says, "So you're just saying God picked the day?" And I was like, "Yeah, but that's all I'm saying. God God picked the day. He has the right to do so." And I mean, I love complicated answers, but the reality is, as many times, it's just as simple as. We believe what God told us to believe. We trust him. He's the author of truth. He's the source of truth. And in this text this morning, we're just going to see more and more and more of that. We live in a world that's hard. We live in a world that has suffering, but we can trust God in it because he's trustworthy and he is the source of truth. So with all that in mind, let's dive in. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to unpack that at the end. But this is his opening, and now he's going to give what we could call a doxology, which is a fancy word for saying he's just going to do this elaborate praise of God. And so, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's why. So we're going to unpack why. And though we don't have an outline and a bulletin this week, so I'll still follow that outline if you did download it, perchance, at home and print it off yourself. It does exist, so I'm still going to fill in the blanks. But we'll, we'll do the best we can to follow that pattern. So he says, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's our main thought in verse 3. We're going to find we have a main thought in each verse. So verse 3, we're called to be born again to a living hope. Then in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So see the three thought blocks in his statement. To him, this is all interwoven. He's speaking from something he sees very clearly. And sometimes when you see something very clearly and you just start describing it, you're describing what you see not necessarily saying some elaborate three-point system and describing it with great detail. He's just saying what he sees. And so if we step back and make sense of the three things Peter's describing, we'll see a clear picture of the thing he's looking at, the actual content. So he says, in verse 3, you were born again to a living hope. Verse 4 is not only to a living hope, but also to an inheritance. And then in verse 5, there's a salvation that will be Revealed. So that's going to be the outline of our thoughts this morning. Let's talk about the living hope, how we're born again to a living hope, how we're born again to an inheritance. And then finally, what exactly is the salvation that will be revealed that we're being guarded for? So that's our thought outline this morning. So diving in, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Let's start on born again. That's very Christian lingo. We use this expression especially in the Bible Belt. Have you been born again this is a very biblical expression we use it all over revivalism is big in this word it's a very biblical concept if you want the technical theological term here this is where we get our regeneration you are made new reborn you are turned into a new creature this is very fundamental to the theology of the new testament god will eventually redeem all of creation but at conversion he redeems you. You are fundamentally altered from the inside out. Your heart is transformed. You go from being depraved to being a child of God. One who still struggles with sin, certainly, but one who loves Jesus now. You have this picture of Jesus. It's like when Jesus was preaching to the crowds and he says some really strange things and people start to desert him. And he turns and he looks at the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter's like, <laughs> Where would we go? You're the ones with the words of life. You are the one who's talking about eternal life. It's you we're here for. That's what's happened in every believer. There's been a radical internal transformation to where we have a love, have a faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we mean to say you were born again. We don't just mean you've made a decision one day. We don't mean you walked the aisle and filled out a card. We don't mean you raised your hand in a church service that you prayed the sinner's prayer, we mean you went from dead in sin to alive in Christ. This is what it means to be born again. So remember our son. We're living in a world that is broken, expecting one day a world that is fixed. When does the born again happen? It happens now. That's not something for later. This is something for now. Now, where does this come from? How does it work? It says, we're born again to a living hope, and this was caused by God. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now we can get into our theological debates here. This is where you get into the order of salvation, this faith, come before conversion. The fact of the matter is it doesn't matter how you work out your order of salvation. It doesn't change the logic of this verse. God causes this. This is God's work. It's not ours. We didn't come up with this great elaborate plan to rebirth ourselves. We don't jump through hoops to rebirth ourselves. This is God's plan according to his great mercy. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now let's talk about that to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, let's do a quick reminder, recap. What we mean by resurrection. When we say Jesus rose from the dead, we do mean something very particular. We don't mean that he just was dead and then he wasn't dead anymore, though it is that. It's much more than that. Lazarus did that. You may remember the story in John chapter 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, yet we're told that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Technically, theologically speaking, Jesus is the only person to ever have raised from the dead and the resurrection. Sin. So if you think about it, where is Lazarus today? He's dead. He's in heaven with the Lord. His body is decayed somewhere on this earth. But where is the physical body of Jesus today? It's literally at the right hand of the Father. That's what we mean when we say that. That's where he is. He has passed through death and come out on the other side. Death itself is undone in Christ. And by that very power, eternity will be based. On the undoing of death. We'll see words about that in verse 4. But that's what Jesus does when he rises from the dead. He conquers sin. He conquers death. He conquers the power of death, which was sin. He has conquered all of that. And that same power is what's applied to me, the individual believer, to you, the individual believer, when you were born again. From dead to alive. We see this pattern in Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Forward a few verses. We're made alive through Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be born again. The resurrection, then, is the power behind regeneration. So let's think through this. So we're born again into a living hope. It's through the resurrection that the power of regeneration comes. And this regeneration is God's work, not ours. So let's think through it like this. We're in a timeline where things are broken. We're expecting a future timeline where things are perfect. And when we ask the question, why isn't God redeeming now? The answer to that is he is. Rather than transforming your circumstances, the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus is transforming you. That you are being transformed. So if you think about it, he's like we've been born again or we've been regenerated. We've been made new To a living hope. Now let's just think about what hope is. Let's try to define hope. If you think about hope, maybe a simple way, and we have to alliterate every now and then. Hope is just confidence in a conclusion. You know how it ends. So you hope now because of what you know happens later. Confidence in a conclusion. So the particular conclusion we're talking about here is the eternal life. The resurrection of the dead. The coming inheritance. The great day when the Lord redeems Everything we have hope in that, but hope only matters in as much as it changes what you do now. So we have a hope that we live in. We're living in a particular hope. So I've been getting up um, and going to the gym uh, most weeks, and uh, so I work out with Jacob. If you don't know Jacob, I feel bad for me. He works out pretty hard, and uh, we do this interval training things. And you can just imagine my body in, in this scenario. I don't want video of this at the gym at all, but sometimes we get on the stair match. what do you call it? thing, we step machine, where you step, and we do 15 minutes on the steps, and that'll be like the last thing we do that day. And I'm sitting there, when I get on that machine, within 30 seconds, I want to die. Um, it's just, that's how I feel every time. And when I'm sitting there, I'm like, this is never going to end. Take about 15 minutes, man, you can do that. He's pretty good at like encouraging me and seeing on my face the dread and terror of what's about to happen, but there's a clock in the building that I can see from the Stairmaster. And so my kind of rule of thumb is at 6.30, I'm done. I'm going home because I've got things to do. I don't know what those things are, but they involve me not being at the gym. So I'm sitting on that, tr- that whatever you call it, the Stairmaster thing, and I, I'll look down and be like, man, it's been an eternity. And we're like three minutes into the 15 minutes. I'm like, I'm going to die. And I'll look up over that clock, and I'm just counting down. It's not 6.30 yet. But I know 6.30 is coming. And so it creates in me a hope, which translates into, I can keep going a little bit more. Okay, another step. A few more steps. That clock is moving. I can't see the second hand, which is probably good because I'd see how slow it was moving. You know, but I know that that clock is changing. So I'm just going to close my eyes and not look at it for a second. And I take the steps and I look back and I'm like, oh, a minute went by. This is so good. I'm going to get through this. That's living hope. What I mean is, I see what's in the future, and it changes the way I live in the moment. That's what living hope is. Because I'm born again, that's a stirring of new desire in me, a stirring of new life in me, so I can look to this coming future. We'll talk about the inheritance in a moment. I can look at that inheritance and live differently. It's a living hope. A dead hope would be where, oh, okay, well... I'll just quit. is coming either way. That's not living hope. It's dead hope. Living hope wakes us up. It's not dead. Living hope means I can go. Living hope means I can keep living in spite of the circumstances happening in my life right now. I can keep going. I can keep following Jesus. I can keep walking through all of this because I trust where it ends, I know the inheritance is coming. I know the salvation will be revealed. I know that it's coming. I know that it'll be worth it. So I have a living hope. That's the idea there. So we're born again into this living hope. So rather than transforming my circumstances, God transforms me. And then I can look forward to and live because of the living hope. Let's keep going. Verse 4. So not only are we born again to a living hope, we're also born again to to an inheritance. Now this is very biblical lingo. We see this not only in Peter. We see this strongly in the Apostle Paul and his writings. That we are looking forward to an inheritance. Now when we think of inheritance, we do think of it a little differently than it's meant biblically. We think of when our parents die, we get their stuff. That's not really what's going on with the text. It's related to that idea of you have a future ownership, a future participation in some greater system and so god doesn't die and we inherit his position that's not at all what the biblical lingo is about inheritance is just saying it's later it's not now we get a role we get a place we get authority in the kingdom that we don't have now so we're born again to a living hope that transforms what i'm doing but it's very important that i can see clearly what that future thing is that I'm hoping in. So that's what we're looking at. There's an inheritance that is imperishable. You follow the idea here. Uh, Things that perish don't last. I don't know, so I live on a farm and we collect eggs and we try to make sure we have a process for making sure eggs didn't like sit out in the yard for six months before you crack them in the house. Um, And the reason we have a strategy for this is because we've done it that way before. Um, thought we collected, thought we were going well. And when you crack, have you ever cracked the spoiled egg? You don't crack it open. You set it free. You, you hit the side and it goes, free! It's, it's Mel Gibson crying freedom. And it jumps out and then you can't eat eggs for six months. Um, it's a crazy experience, but we all know what it means for something to perish. The point is, this inheritance is beyond all the, the corruption and evil. The evil, remember, is now. The coming inheritance in the eternal future is after evil is completely removed, after death is gone, after perishing is dealt with, after weakness is eradicated. It's there. It cannot perish. So there's no amount of time that can happen in the interim, the already-but-not-yet period of the kingdom of God. There's nothing that can happen now that would destroy this future inheritance. And specifically, the future inheritance we're waiting for. So, we're waiting a coming inheritance. This inheritance is our individual resurrection. That's the key thing he's talking about. So, we can think about it little, small, individual. We can think about it corporate. God redeems all of creation. But in this particular case, we're talking about your specific physical redemption. So, it's an inheritance that's imperishable. It's undefiled, and it is unfading. And that's biblical lingo. The unfading, there's an image we see consistently in scripture that glory is a light, and God has a glory. And just like in the Apostle Paul, when he talks about the difference between Moses and Jesus, Moses would see the Lord, his face would grow. But what happened to his face after he spent time with the Lord as the days went on? Do you remember the story? It would fade. Go away. So he'd cover his face so nobody saw the fading, and then it changes it. But we look at Jesus directly. We're not going through the the law. We're not going through Moses. We look at Jesus directly, and we have an unfading image of God. Well, that future glory has no deviation. It's an unending, faithless experience of the full glory of God. That's our inheritance. That's what we're looking to, but it's not just our individual. It's also the whole creation will be redeemed in the end. Every last bit of creation. We see this in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says all of creation is groaning and longing, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God because they participate in this great coming redemption. So it ended by saying it's kept in heaven for you. Verse 5 picks up by saying, Who? So the who is the you. You follow? So you have an inheritance, so let's talk about you for just a second. So you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Again, let's think through biblical lingo here, because we would mostly say saved or salvation is past tense. I believed in Jesus, therefore I am saved. And that is typically the most regular way we use the expression. Sometimes that's used to define justification. I've been declared righteous. In God's eyes, I have been saved. But we can also use salvation in a current sense. I'm progressively being saved. God saves me on a regular basis. He's redeeming me. He's transforming me. He's literally fixing things in my life. We see this already-not-yet aspect in life. Sometimes God heals. Sometimes God does miraculous things. Sometimes God gives us things, and sometimes God lets us suffer. We experience both, and through all of that, we see the salvation of the Lord progressively. We learn to trust Him more, either trust Him through provision or trust Him through taking care of us when He doesn't provide the needs. In fact, when we say we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, exactly what the passage is about sometimes we're trusting God because he met all of our needs and sometimes God just meets us with His person and he doesn't meet our physical needs And he gives us strength to keep going either way in all of these experiences I grow in my trust in other words I'm progressively being saved so I am saved I'm being saved but then there's this future salvation that is to come and this future salvation is just another way of referring to the great redemption, another way of referring to eternal life, another way of referring to heaven on earth, new creation, new heaven. All of this is what he's talking about. That is the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's not the point we want to emphasize. So there is a salvation coming at the end, but here I want you to see what God is doing. It says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Who's being guarded? we are. God's people, God's children. He is guarding us with his power. So God is guarding you with his power. Well, how powerful is the Lord? All? All? I don't disagree with that at all. God is all powerful. Paul words it another way. If God is for you, who is it that can be against you? Nothing can be against you. Not things of this world, not things of the heavenly realm. Nothing can be against you if you are guarded by God's power. Now I know in different theological circles, questions about can you lose your salvation? Can you fall from grace? I think biblically the answer is incredibly clear. God guards us by his power, not by yours. If salvation was up to you, you would lose it. You would mess it up. But that's not how it works. God does the guarding. He is the one on guard for you through faith to keep you until the coming salvation. So we can rest in salvation because we know God promises to guard us. Think about the security that that grants. If God is on guard, it's like, I've got you. I'll get you from A to Z because my plan is to get you to the eternal kingdom. All of the way Jesus says it in John chapter 6, he's talking to the disciples and he says, I came down to do the will of the Father, and here's the will of the Father that I'm not lose anyone but raise them all up on the last day. Does Jesus accomplish the will of his Father? Or is Jesus a failure? It feels wrong to even ask the question. Jesus accomplishes his Father's will. He will raise us up on the last day. Day. He guards us. And then somebody immediately would say, Well, what about Judas? It's funny because that's actually added in there, because Jesus didn't lose anybody except the one he was supposed to lose. I just love the way it's thrown in there. Like obviously that was part of God's plan. But he doesn't lose any of his actual children. And who were his actual children? Those he has caused to be born again. Well, all of this settle in. Here. If God has caused you to be born again, if you have a Love for Jesus. If you're like the disciples who didn't run away and say, Jesus, we want you. We don't need the show. We don't need the elaborate setup. We just want Jesus. If you're among that crowd, if you've been called to be born again to a living hope and to an inheritance, you're guarded for this coming salvation. So Think about that. If that's true of you this morning, you can imagine what Peter opened up with verse 3. Blessed be the God God. Of our lord jesus christ blessed be his name praised be his name we have a temptation in times like this to fall into despair and i get it this is a scary scenario the more you watch media the more you see what other people are doing you go to walmart and you just ran out of toilet paper and you just want more toilet paper and you get there and there's Literally no toilet paper and like, well, okay, well, maybe I at least I can eat and you go to get a hamburger bun and there's no hamburger buns and you look for the sanitizer and it's all gone and you leave out going the world is crazy, it's falling apart, what is happening, and you, you read on the news, everything's shutting down, schools are closing, people are freaking out, you hear some reports are incredibly scary, some reports are dismissive, so now you're not even sure who to believe, and we look around this world, and it, it scares us, and we kind of pull back, and we want to hide and be fearful of everything that's going on, I understand that, it's scary, because God keeps us, he protects us. Does that mean anybody that loves God will never get the virus? No, it doesn't. It doesn't even mean you wouldn't die. But it does mean that God loves us and that anything that happens to us is for our good and for his glory. We can trust him in this. He's got a plan. And it always works. This day is coming. Our hope is living. It's not dead. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you that during this season, we know that nothing has changed in heaven. You are on the throne. You have always been. We trust you. You've caused us to be born again to a living hope. So God, I pray that we would walk living, not dead, as we look forward to a hope, a coming inheritance, a salvation that's going to be revealed. I ask that you reorient us, that you help us to turn our gaze away from the trouble, away from the the depression away from the anxiety to Christ instead, knowing that no matter what happens, you are faithful and that you will guard and keep us through faith for that salvation that's ready to be revealed. We thank you for all you have done. We pray that you would continue to work in us. Let us taste and see that you are good. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great afternoon. Stay safe at home. See you guys later.